Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. The show is aired every fourth Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, one of these days is going to be live so you guys can call in. But this, again, is, is a taped program, so you'll, um, you won't be able to call in today. I always remind you of my short pet sounds, which is 7.30 in the morning on Sundays. For those of you who are sipping your coffee or tea, be entertained for about five minutes about pet issues. Today, I have a very special guest and very, I think, very special topic. We're talking about hospice in pets. And Dr. Kelly Hill is with us from the Haven Veterinary Hospice. Uh, good morning, Kelly. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Good, good. Uh, thank you. I know you're busy. Uh, you have a, a busy schedule and a family, so uh, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me. So I'm going to call you Kelly, and I'll be John. Please. So we have Thank a you. good, we don't want to be formal here. So first, uh, as I ask all my guests, is how you got to uh, the hospice aspect of veterinary medicine, and how you got here from there. Okay. So I, right out of vet school, started emergency and critical care, and I was in emergency and critical care um, for about 16 years, and um, married a Mainer. And decided to start a family. And I, after I had my twins, I decided that emergency probably wasn't the best lifestyle to have a family. So I went into day practice with the intent of purchasing the practice where I worked. Um, while I was there, I was diagnosed with cancer when my twins were three. And um, going through all of that... I realized that I didn't want to practice medicine the way I had been practicing in the past. You know, um, it's wonderful to save lives and to, you know, it's exciting in emergency medicine. It's also incredibly hard in emergency medicine. Um, but I really, having cancer changed me. And so I started kind of thinking about how I wanted to do things, how I wanted to do things differently, I should say. And um, found out that there was a hospice association in veterinary medicine, which I didn't know about. And it had been around for about three or four years, International Association of Animal Hospice and Palliative Care. And when I found out that they had a certification program, I jumped in and I quit my job and I started a house call practice with the intent of doing hospice palliative care um, laser therapy, and um, we incorporated senior care because it's it's not as cut and dry as, oh, you need to be in hospice or, oh, you don't. Um, and so it just kind of naturally over the last four, four and a half years has um, blossomed into senior care, hospice palliative care. I got my certification. It took a couple of years, and um, it's just been amazing. Why did it take a couple of years where there formal courses, seminars, um, uh, counseling. I mean, how did, how did that uh, come about? So it starts, it, it is formal. So it starts with um, in-person training and social work, like understanding how to relate to people in, um, in end of life care, those nuances that are, um, associated with helping a family deal with the death of a pet. 
and all of the emotional, it's not baggage, but all of the emotional turmoil that entails because it brings up a lot of personal experiences for the family with death of a family member or another pet. Um, And so the first part of it is social work. So in-person classes, um, a conference, and then you start your online work. So it's lectures with um, quizzes. It's uh, written assignments throughout um, over the course of about, I think it's like 17, 18 months and case studies. I had to write papers, which I hadn't done in a very long Uh-oh. time. Um, <laughs> that I sounds know, ominous. I, I know that was always a challenge for me. Writing was always a challenge for me, but I, I, you know, generated these case reports from two families that I worked with eight to 10 pages that just kind of flowed organically from me. And I just realized that this was my passion and where I was supposed to be. So is this, uh, and then the, you take a written you have a in person and then you take your written test and if you pass your your case reports all the quizzes your written tests then you get your certification <laughs> so how much of that was uh, people oriented you say social work and how probably much was 30% so what kind of um, experience or, or expertise did people have with the veterinary part of hospice because it's fairly uh, what do you mean? Is, is there I... more? Is there a lot of literature out there? A lot of like your professors were qualified. Not, I wouldn't say they're not qualified, but was this kind no. of a, a new area that you're just kind of supposing it's kind of and based it's, on theory? It, it it is a very new area, and part of you know part of what we did initially when you start the hospice is you call your school and say, "Are you teaching hospice?" Are you teaching end of life care? What are you doing as a, you know, as a university training all these veterinarians? How are you incorporating this? Um, as far as literature, there are a few books um, out now. There's probably three or four that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, it really the the biggest program that there is out there is Lap of Love, uh, um, started by Danny McVetty and, and Mary Gardner. I think it was just the two of them that started a hospice organization and a focus on end of life care for animals. And um, the program started with a group of of veterinarians, the hospice organization started with a group of veterinarians that wanted to do things better and wanted to do things differently. And it's turned into an international association where pre-pandemic, we would meet at least once a year for a large conference with an intense focus on what we do, as well as self-care, because what we do is also very emotional for, um, you know, hospice veterinarians but it's it's grown when I graduated I think I was one of like 260 veterinarians internationally that had a hospice certification there's actually one other vet in Maine that has her hospice certification um, but she had an injury and wasn't actively working Um, we haven't been able to get together as much because of the pandemic um, but it is still a very active organization, and it has a lot of information for for pet owners. How many veterinary hospice. schools have hospice now? Do you know? 
percentage? Not very many. There's a percentage I would say is probably less than 10%. We're, we're working on that. You know, that's part of contacting our alma mater and saying, hey, what are, what are you offering? You know, when I graduated from vet school, there's no training in euthanasia. You just right. went into a practice and whoever was doing that taught you, which right. is not or you, okay. Or you taught yourself. Or you taught yourself, which is awful. So Kathleen um, Cooney is one of the hospice veterinarians who started CADA, the Companion Animal Euthanasia Training Academy, so that anybody, you don't have to do a very expensive hospice training over two years, can learn everything there is to know about how to give uh, an animal a very humane, peaceful, good death, you know, euthanasia, good death. And so that's been huge for for people, I think, in practice is getting their CADA certification because there's so many different ways to, to do a euthanasia that rather than placing a catheter and taking the animal back and stressing that there's just so much you can do that, that I never learned until um, a little bit personal experience. Let's get onto that. What hospice is because you talked about euthanasia and I think uh, the public in general has this, not everyone, but a lot of people have this conception of what hospice is. And usually Mm -hmm. it's with people and the misconception that I had was it's just a time where someone came in and held a person's hand until they passed away. And my wife is a home care nurse, so I got exposed to a lot of hospice care people, and it isn't anything like that. Some hospice uh, caretakers can be with a person for years, helping them right. with their medications and, and caring for them and help helping the family uh, through the stages and explaining things. I mean, it's, it's very, very involved. And there's a lot more to it. And I think someone like you promoting this kind of thing in pets is fabulous. It's it's different than Mm -hmm. human hospice, but yet hospice in veterinary medicine is not just you going in and to someone's house and putting someone to sleep, which a pet to sleep, which is something back in the eighties and nineties when I was practicing, that's what I did. My house calls mostly when I did them were euthanasia. And I had to, I had to use my, I had to develop my own hospice-like care from for the clients because I was on my own. Right. So, what is hospice in for pets? Because pet owners, it, it's different. It's a different different relationship. So, right. kind of flesh this out because I think people need to know. Right. So the you're right. The common misconception is that hospice equals home euthanasia or end of life, right? And so I typically lump hospice and palliative care together when I'm talking to families because when it is very unusual for me to be able to go in and say, oh, your pet has this much time left. So we animals are amazing. And so you don't know exactly what time frame you're dealing with in many cases, right? And, and with many pets. And so I do hospice and palliative care. So hospice is basically focusing on palliating clinical signs of disease. It's usually um, something that we look towards when a pet has been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, cancer, um, 
kidney disease, although kidney disease, animals can live with kidney disease for a really, really, really long time. Um, I've had patients in hospice for months, typically to well over a year. So it's not always end of life care or just end of life care. So it's taking that family and their beloved pet through the process of focusing on comfort, focusing on respect. So we don't pill animals. We don't, we look at what their boundaries are and how we can support the human animal bond while still pursuing comfort. So there's and, two. And it, and it doesn't preclude treatment. That's the other thing. So when you, I, I feel like some people, when they reach out to us, and this happens quite a bit, I'd say probably 10% of the time people reach out for hospice and then they cancel because they don't think the pet is to hospice yet because they're not understanding that it's really getting in earlier Right. And, and incorporating those comfort measures and understanding boundaries and, and making environmental changes um, are, are huge in the quality of life and, the, and the, the quantity of life in many cases that a pet has. So there's like three, three different areas that I see is, is making the pet comfortable. Right. Uh, helping the people. And then the Supporting. last thing I, I want you to flesh out, because people may not know what, what literally what palliative care means. Maybe right. say what the definition and give an example what palliative care is, because that's very important for people to understand right. that. So palliative care is um, basically providing comfort. You're, you're not towards the end of life necessarily, but you have some medical challenges. So a classic palliative care patient of mine has chronic osteoarthritis, um, you know, an older lab or Rottweiler, um, that they're just really struggling to get around. And, um, and, and, you know, maybe potentially some early signs of cognitive disease. Um, but, you know, animals, something that animals can live with for a very long time. Um, and so basically, with a palliative care client, we're going in, we're doing medications if medications are what feels right for the family. I have some people that don't want Western medications, so we do um, Chinese herbs, we do laser therapy, we do non-pharmacologic anti-inflammatory treatments um, and get them to get the animal to a place of comfort and in the, at the same time are also helping the people understand what are their limits. You know, what, what do they want to see and not want to see at the end of life? I think that's a huge, huge, huge part of veterinary hospice is helping the family understand. So people struggle. And I've, I've been there too. I've struggled. People struggle with an end-of-life decision. And they think that when they sign up for hospice that they're giving up, that they're saying, my pet is dying. Um, there's a, a movement, um, I, I think it's called death positive movement, where, you know, death is, is something that we do need to discuss. 
Um, death is something that is inevitable and how, how we face it or approach it makes a big difference in a pet's life. And so understanding what will happen towards the end of life and understanding the natural changes that we see with a pet, I, I think is a big part of hospice and palliative care. So I kind of talked in a circle a little bit, I feel like, but, but palliative care is to focus on comfort, not breaking the human-animal bond and understanding progression of disease. I think a big, big, big part of what we do is understanding progression of disease. What does this look like? You know, what, what does kidney failure look like in a pet versus kidney failure in a human? It's very, very, very different. And that's a common misunderstanding that people have. So you must be dealing with changing expectations of the client. You, when you first, when you first uh, contact them, they have certain expectations, maybe the wrong, maybe the wrong. And then when you get in, I mean, well, not wrong, not, right. not a healthy, right. not healthy. I shouldn't say wrong. No, nothing's wrong. But then as you help them, do you have to constantly re evaluate expectations so they know what to so they don't have a false uh, a false uh, sense of what's going to go next next step you know what i mean well things change right yeah. the the condition of of you know the animal their pet will change and so this in palliative care, because I lump them together, um, are understanding those changes. So when I um, enroll a pet into hospice palliative care, I'm available to the family seven days a week. And we do a lot of communication online or on the phone. It's not all in person. But I try really, really hard at the intake appointment if we know what's going on, if there's a known disease, not just a kind of question mark, we're slowing down and, and having some struggles, to to walk people through what progression of the disease looks like or can look like and then get them set up with a comfort kit so that if this happens, you give this or, you know, to, so that there aren't any surprises. So your first, so your first visit is quite extensive. Very extensive. Before we get into, I want you to talk about that, but how do people find you? Do you have veterinarians referring? Are you a referral? I mean, how how do they know how how do they know how to call you? Right. So the magnet on my car, which is how you found me. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That's a little (laughs) story. (laughs) Also, um, tends to be part of people stop me when I when I go places when we started we didn't really advertise um and it was me talking to veterinary hospitals and introducing this new concept because it's a new concept for a lot of people and then you know over time it's just naturally progressed to yes I get referrals from veterinary hospitals typically for end-of-life care um sometimes for hospice I think most people that are looking for hospice reach out to me after doing an online search. So veterinarians, I uh, hate to say, um, aren't really in tune with getting a hold of you early. They're, Correct. A lot of us veterinarians still get this, uh, we'll call you when I need to have, have the, the pet put to sleep rather than a year before. 
Right. So, but what's happening right now in veterinary medicine is really unprecedented. So for the last two years of the pandemic, veterinaries are, are just getting slammed, right? Everybody kind of hunkered down. They got a, a, a new pet, you know, to spark some joy. We did the same thing. We got four kittens um, during, we call them our pandemic babies. And um, so the veterinary hospitals are just inundated with appointments. And I, you know, I, and the emergency clinics, my gosh, just overwhelmed with the, the number of cases and appointments. So I don't think that there's the time to sit and process that. Do you need to enroll in hospice? You know, reach out to this person. I think that they're just running, you know, running and trying to, to just get through their day. Well, the, the impression. That's the yeah, impression I get the small, the small practices, the one or two man can't, right. can't see yeah. as many cl- clients as they used to. So then you right. get people, you can't get them in for a month. So then they go to the emergency hospital like humans because they can't get right. into the regular vet and they're overwhelmed. And right. so they don't have time to think. So has that um, increased your referral because, because vets are just like at the, at their wits end and they need to deal with their pet, their, their clients somehow. Right. So I suspect, I mean, we've, we've been in practice or been in business for about four and a half years. And so, yes, I suspect it definitely has increased our business. Um, People, I don't think realized that um, hospice or home euthanasia is available for um, until they were put in the situation where they couldn't get in or they couldn't be. So the heartbreaking, one of the heartbreaking things about all this is people not being able to be with their pets, right, in their last moment. And so the the overwhelming majority of people that I help are so grateful that their family could all be there, that, you know, it was very peaceful and there's no stress. I I just would turn myself inside out to make sure that I'm not stressing an animal towards the end of life. Um, and my appointments are two hours. An end-of-life appointment is, is an hour and a half to two hours. I set aside plenty of time to make sure that everything is very peaceful. But I, I do think that more people started to go online and look at options when they couldn't get into clinics. And, and I probably 10% of the people I work with have animals who haven't been to a vet in 12, 13, 14, 15 years, yeah. which I didn't realize. We're talking with Dr. Kelly Hill of the Haven Veterinary Hospice. Um, I don't know if you call it clinic or hospital or just referral or hospice. Yeah, and I call it Haven Veterinary Hospice and Senior Care. Oh, and, Senior um, Care. Okay, I'll make yeah. sure. And this is W E R U, uh, Dr. John Hunt, your host for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. W E R U is in East Orland, Maine, eighty-nine point nine. So let's get back to talking with with Kelly about the first visit. Uh, are a lot of first visits, people are expecting you to discuss euthanasia, but then when you go in, you want, you don't, you don't necessarily want to talk about that. I mean, how does that work? Cause they, oh, they no, we definitely talk about euthanasia, I mean, but, but, but here's, but, but what I do is, is I, I meet the, I meet the families where they are. So I don't go in and 
immediately start talking about. That is the last thing that we discuss if the family is ready. And some people aren't ready. And so everything that I do is respect for the family and respect for the human-animal bond, respect for the animal's wishes, right? So when I go in, I'm getting the history. So I need records prior if there are vet records. Some people don't have any so that I can review and go over what's been done in the past, any challenges, any, you know, history of, of medical illness. Um, and then I go in and, and I have them tell me, you know, um, what are your goals for this appointment? What are your challenges um, with, with care right now? What is your understanding of the disease process? Um, and then I go through a, a very thorough history um, to in, including what, what is, you know, what is joyful for your pet? Like, what are the things that he or she likes the most? Like, you know, and to get a, a sense for that bond and um, what their goals are. So it really is about what are the family's goals? What do you want to see towards the end of life? What don't you want to see? What are your past experiences? And that's a huge part of why people reach out to, I think, for a home euthanasia or a hospice appointment is because they've had a traumatic clinic experience. Um, And I just can't even, and that's why people hold on sometimes longer than than maybe is, is the best because they've had such a traumatic experience in the past. And so that's one of the things I've tried to help clinics understand is that I'm not going in trying to take anybody's business. I am trying to be part of a team that helps this family. So when I take an animal into hospice, I'm not their primary vet at all. I'm part of the team and I'm helping with the challenges and I'm the person that you can call on Saturday or Sunday and I'll, I'll come out and help. Um, but if, if veterinarians realized the number of people that can't go into this room anymore because that's where their pet passed previously or don't ever want to go back because the you know there was a what was perceived to be not a good euthanasia um, they would realize that allowing somebody or, or encouraging somebody to go into the home to help the family is is better for everyone the pet the family and the veterinary hospital because it hasn't it hasn't, um, it's not broken, but it hasn't created ill will, right? Does it get uh, kind of fuzzy between you and the uh, primary vet in terms of what, how the clients see you? They reach out to you for veterinary care, uh, even though that's not your job, because you're the veterinarian and you have, you have a personal relationship with them. Is, right. it, is, it, is that difficult or you just say you need to see your primary care. So my job is veterinary care. Oh, so okay. my job is veterinary care. Oh, absolutely. Once oh, okay. you're in hospice, any, any challenge I help with. Oh, okay. So I don't carry x-rays with me. I can't do anything like that. And I will get you to the proper place. So if you need an ultrasound, if that's how you want to proceed, then, um, then I will help expedite those things. But no, it is, it's very involved veterinary care. 
you know, because things change. It's wound management. It's urinary tract infections. It's pain management. It's um, nebulizer, nebulizer, sometimes oxygen. Um, no, it's, I'm very actively involved with the care. So what I don't do is I don't do um, vaccines. I don't do general medicine. That's, that's not my place. That's not my focus. When I started, because I had no clue how things were going to proceed once I got my hospice certification, we were Haven Veterinary House Call, and I did all that. And I very quickly realized that was a mistake because, two reasons, because it wasn't my passion. I love animals. I love puppies and kittens, but they're not my heart right now. You know, I, I want to work with seniors. I want to provide comfort, and I want to help families deal with and understand and feel comfortable with, you know, end of life. And so we changed the name and we dropped doing, you know, vaccinations and stuff like that pretty quickly. So uh, once you um, take on a client, then the client understands that you're the go-to person. Right. And if you needed something outside the realm of home medicine, you would contact either their, their veterinarian. The regular vet, always. For x-rays and whatever. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I find this in my palliative care clients. I go, you know, dental disease, gosh darn it, is so under-recognized as a, a source of pain. Yes. And it's a source pain. It really is. And so I'm many, many, many times with senior pets or palliative care, I go in and I'm, you know, we talk about discomfort and I really, a lot of people go and get dental care <laughs> after our appointments. You know, if the patient doesn't have kidney disease, even kidney disease, some do, um, cancer, you know, life, life, very, you know, significant life limiting illnesses, because there's a chance to sit down and discuss that this is something that impacts quality of life. You know, I, I have one gorgeous Rottweiler that I'm thinking of right now who um, is a palliative care patient who went and had her teeth cleaned. And it, I think it made a big difference on quality of life. And so those those kiddos are sent back to their regular vets. Absolutely. Right? And, and there's, there's Yeah. I'm finding people, they, they do this, you know, because I'm spending hours with the families versus 15, 20, maybe 25, 30 minutes if you're lucky. And, and I have set aside that time to really go through everything and, and understand what might be causing discomfort. Dental disease is so under-recognized. Do you, when you have your conference, you first visit, you um, have every member of the family involved? It, it's even, who even wants to be there. Family? Oh, it's optional. Even extended. Oh, absolutely. So, like I said, everything that I that I do is with respecting what what how people feel and what they can bear, right? What they can handle. So many times I'll have five or six people at the original appointment, kids, and I'm totally fine with children being present. I feel like how we how we handle, not how we handle, but how we approach death of a pet with our children impacts how they view death 
and as an adult. And so I don't say put to sleep. Um, you know, we, we use the, the, the real words. And, um, you know, I talk to parents beforehand if they're younger kids. So, you know, what would you, what are your beliefs, right, for, for you know, after death and, and go through how we can try to incorporate a child and all members of the family into this process in a respectful way. So you need to, or you probably you deal with the different stages of grief, denial, uh, anger, and and everyone goes through those stages uh, differently. Mm-hmm. Maybe go through those stages with our with. I don't. I don't. You, deal is that a problem or? Um, not at all. Not at all. So denial is probably. I think denial is probably um, the most common thing that I deal with, but that is people go through that before they reach out to me or they've reached a point where the, the pet can no longer function at all. And so they've reached like they have no other choice. So with my hospice families, um, I don't, I don't see a lot of, of that once they're enrolled in hospice. And maybe it's because we are very clear when we talk about options and what their wishes are. Um, I know I've said this repeatedly, but it's, it's just about respecting what the family wants and helping them understand what's going on. Um, I have not, thank goodness, knock on wood, dealt with anybody who was angry at me. I know other hospice veterinarians who have dealt with anger issues um, and clients, and we have safety mechanisms. My family always knows where I am. You know, I always check in when I get to an appointment. I check in again when I leave an appointment just because, I mean, I, it's a very emotionally, um, sometimes volatile, but, but rarely am I, am I exposed to that. Mostly where, grief. Where's the anger directed then when you see, uh, there's gotta be anger someplace at the animal, at themselves, at family members. Mm-hmm. Many times it's at the veterinarian, the local vet. That's the end. So, yeah. So and so didn't do this, or so and so said this, and that. But the easy target. Yeah, I think you know, and and I, as an emergency vet, holy cow, um, boy, I've had my life threatened many times. I've had people act violently, and I've had credit cards thrown in my face, and I've had to call the police and. Um, wow. you know, as an emergency vet, emergency medicine, whoo, that is, that is, um, a very, very stressful, it's a very rewarding, but a very stressful job. So I, I find I've been very fortunate doing hospice palliative care and end of life that most people, gosh, 99% are so appreciative that I'm coming to help them they see it as help, which is what it's meant to be. So I I haven't had to deal with anything horrible. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. And, you know, also we, we try with, with grief, we send, when people set up appointments, we send grief resources, we email grief resources. I provide them when I um, go to an end of life appointment, I have, um, there's somebody who does specifically pet loss grief counseling. 
Um, there's a veterinary chaplain in Maine, so um, who was in Maine. I got to check. She splits her time between Maine and Florida. But um, there are many online resources. So we try to give the families that we help tools to help themselves after the process, right? And then, and, you know, one thing that I think is, is up and coming in, in the that IAAHPC, the hospice um, community, is that now they have certifications for social workers. So many of the larger hospice centers, which is would be just a, a lovely thing to have, they have social workers, they have the grief counselors there, they have pet loss support groups, and there's also certification for the veterinary technicians. So people that are specially trained to help people through this, this stage. Does it go the other way? Did I misunderstand the, uh, the social worker groups get trained for pets or is it the other way around? No, you can be a licensed clinical social worker and then get your certification in pet loss and grief counseling oh. through the, the International Association of Animal Hospice and Palliative Care. I'll have to talk. My youngest daughter is getting her master's in social and counseling. Oh, cool. And yeah. I could see so, her going down that line. So I, I, will, right. I will tell her about it. My, my dream is to have a hospice center where people can come in and do... Um, Paint, what we call pain vacations, laser therapy, um, you know, pulsed electromagnetic frequency therapy. There's a lot of different things, as well as a comfort center. If, if somebody didn't want you to come into their home, mm. I have, it's, it's pretty infrequent, but I have people say they don't want their animal to pass at home. And so if they can come into a place that's not a veterinary hospital, it's not clinical, it's designed all about comfort, um, you know, then, then that's... That's preferable to some families. I can and see that. Working. That's yeah. I, I can see that uh, to be very uh, popular because there are a lot of people that don't want the association of the death of the animal. They don't want to go to the vet clinic. But they don't want it at their house either. Right. So that's uh, excellent. So that, yeah. So we excellent. were setting up a comfort center in in Biddeford. It's in the works right now. So oh, good. It's, good. Yeah. Wow. Heated blankets, pet sofas, oh, that's you know, awesome. all the good stuff. So I'm I'm pretty excited about it. It's it's been a passion project for the last three years. So it's just you know pandemic time. Everything's a lot slower than. Mm. What species do you deal with, pets? Um, all all pets. So mostly dogs and cats, and mostly dogs. If you you know most pet parents that um, want somebody to come out, I'd say probably seventy percent are are dogs. Um, bunnies. I do see bunnies. I would do reptiles. Um, when I was an emergency vet, I did exotics. So I'm very 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 comfortable with exotic species. So so people are willing to go through a. a hospice care for a snake or does it doesn't matter no, what the animal is so no it, snakes? so i don't find that people with reptiles um bunnies yes those are you know not as not as common it's mostly dogs and cats for hospice um but end of life care it can be any species and you have have you had any uh from your memory any unusual requests that you it just came out of right field um Yes, but I, I think I had, I've had unusual requests my entire career. Um, 
you know, in emergency medicine, you, you get unusual requests. So I think, um, you know, and I know um, in not unusual because everybody's process is different. And I, I really, I find that I respect what people want and what feels right for them. So, you know, I've had people ask me if they could save a tail or an ear. Um, you know, that's maybe the most unusual request, yeah. but I understand that. I understand where that comes from. You know, that ear that's just velvet soft and, and you know, that that's just... I, I get it. I get it. I, I don't think there's a way to do it. And we've talked about it and I've contacted taxidermists for people and, you know, um, but n- nothing that's, you know, crazy. I don't think. A lot of people I know, at least during my practice, that they clipped some hair and, oh, yeah. and saved hair, which is very Yeah. Common. So saved hair, nose prints, ink nose prints. Yes. Paw prints. Actually, paw prints, um, some veterinary clinics do the paw prints thing. Most of them do. Most yeah. of them do now. Um, and I find a lot of people want tattoos. So doing an ink print of the paw or the nose is, is quite lovely. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about with hospice that I think is also important is that it's you don't have to do euthanasia. You can do a hospice-assisted or hospice-palliated natural death. And so that was something that I had not thought about as a veterinarian in many, many years until I got my hospice certification. There are people that do not want to make that decision. They don't feel like they have the right to say to end a life. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very personal. Some people feel like it's their responsibility. Some people feel like it's not their right. And so doing a hospice assisted natural death, as long as it's done properly is, is an option that I talk to all of my hospice families about, you know, they need to understand what their options are. There's a great, um, little handout. It's called the quality of dying checklist. I don't really like the name, but it kind of goes through what the natural um, progression towards end of life is. You know, some, some veterinarians, I hear this quite a bit that they say, oh, you'll know it's time when your pet stops eating. Well, not eating is a natural progression towards end of life. Not eating does not always equal suffering, right? So not eating because you're severely nauseous or painful is suffering, but there there are natural things that happen with the body towards end of life that you know, you can you can palliate and as long as families understand what all of that looks like, it's it's a it's a very lovely, peaceful, reasonable next so, step. So how does how does that evolve in, in a case? Initially you come in, are people do do clients have already decided to euthanize their pet and they change their mind or they've already decided they just want to keep them comfortable until they die on their own? I mean, is that something you have people to People don't usually out? know. Yeah, people don't usually think about palliated natural death. They don't realize it's an option. Um, when people reach out for hospice care, they've been thinking about death and they've been thinking about end of life for probably months in many cases. And they've just reached a point where they're, they just don't know what to do anymore 
or they're worried about suffering when they reach out to me. And so part of sorry. That was weird. Um, Somebody tried to call in. So I I just, I had to to stop it. So when they reach out to me, they've gone through all these different stages, right? It's it's not something that they're reaching out early in the process. Um, Or their veterinarian has said, you know what, you really need to, if if euthanasia doesn't feel right for you right, right now, you really need to reach out to somebody who can help you through this process. You know, there are several hospitals that are really, really good about saying, you know, give, give Dr. Hill a call and she can help you. Oh, so go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, so we, you know, part, part of that hospice intake, you know, there are anywhere from two to three and a half hours. I had one go five and a half one time, um, that we go through all of the, the different possibilities and options. And, and sometimes the appointments are too emotionally you know, we talked. We always offer to discuss end of life care, but sometimes it's just so much emotion and so so taxing that we have to say we're going to take that part and discuss it in the future, right? So we're going to get started on comfort care measures and kind of start wrapping our brain around what's going on with your pet, and then we'll talk about that other stuff later if that feels right for you. So it's always about what feels right for the family and what feels right for the pet. Do you have clients after your first visit just kind of drop out of sight? They don't contact you yeah. anymore? And, and do, yeah. you, do you know why? Or I mean, what's, what's I, going on with that? Well, so no, I, I don't know why. I think that, um, and, and I'll hear back, you know, the when I very first started that I used to think, oh gosh, you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe they passed away or, um, they just felt like this wasn't a good fit. And then I'll get a call two years later. We feel like it's time. And I'm, (laughs) 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 I I saw you two years previously. So I think that some animals do incredibly well, right? Because, because hospice, you know, hospice medicine, we think outside the box. We're not, we're not limited to CYA medicine. We're not, you know, we don't have to do this, this specific way because that's where all the studies are and the research. And so we have a conversation, this we can do. These are the potential side effects. Um, You know, we're focusing on comfort. If this shortens the life, you know, one or two months, is that an acceptable trade-off, right? So, you know, especially with, with pain medicine, I, um, I use Tylenol a lot with dogs. Tylenol kills cats. Never give a cat Tylenol. Ever, 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 ever. Tylenol kills cats. But I use appropriate doses of Tylenol, which is not really done in veterinary medicine and right. in, in general practice anymore. And, and I find that it works incredibly well. Um, dogs with brain tumors, nasal tumors that are invading into the brain, there's Tylenol has its place, right? And so, um, but you have to talk about liver failure. You know, it's extremely rare. It's extremely rare in humans. There's a black box warning on Tylenol and people take it all the time. And I've met one human that actually had liver issues associated with Tylenol. So, I mean, there, there are things that we do in a different way 
that um, and medications we use sometimes in a different way, you know, more frequently than what's labeled um, because we are focusing on comfort. You, you mentioned in the beginning of the interview with regard to uh, medication that you use alternative medicine. Is that upon request or is that your suggestion? I mean, how, how does that work into a palliative care situation? We, we discuss options. If, you know, I had, um, I have people say, oh, I would never use steroids. You know, I would never do this drug or I, I don't want that medication or I don't want medications at all. And so we talk about everything. There are some Chinese herbal, you know, Chinese herbal medications are typically a gentler medicine, um, but they take longer to, to be as effective. Acupuncture, acupressure, physical therapy, massage therapy, laser, pulsed electromagnetic frequency, um, you know, there, there's a lot that can be incorporated. So I typically talk to the family about options and find out what feels right for them. It's always about what feels right for them. It's not about my agenda. And so when I'm preparing for an appointment, I look at their records and I kind of, I make these, these lists. Okay. You know, for pain, what are my options for nausea? What are my options for respiratory issues? What are my options? And I, and I kind of just run the gamut of, of what would potentially work. And then I get a feel for what the family what their belief system is because some people don't believe in Chinese herbs and acupuncture and, um, and, and kind of make the, the hospice plan, palliative care plan based on our conversation and what they, what feels right for them. How often does religion come into play with pets? Very infrequently, very infrequently. Um, it only comes up for me, and this is probably different for other hospice vets, when we're talking about children. And that's because I ask. Because when kids are going to be present at an end of life appointment, they're so, they're so, you know, you know, inquisitive and they're, they're almost always asking me. So there's two different ways. They're either talking to me nonstop and asking me questions, which is awesome because they're processing or they, they're just silently, you know, kind of trying to get through the appointment. Um, But, I talk to parents and ask them, are there any specific religious beliefs? Do they talk about heaven? Things like that. I provide a list of books, grief resources for kids by age, um, and um, some web, not not for the kids, but more web, web online access for the parents to help them help the children. But religion, you know, I was kind of surprised, but it doesn't come into yeah. it as much. Um, Buddhism. Buddhists right. do not believe in, in, um, you know, euthanasia. And so I've had a couple of situations where those are hospice assisted natural deaths. So that's, and, but that's very infrequent. But you have, but you're, you're, but you're set up to do that though, to help someone who, who may have religious, uh, beliefs. Absolutely. It's, it's all about respecting the family's wishes and helping to guide them through what's going on with their pets. Even if the family's wishes may be something you're, you don't agree with. Absolutely. Because it's, it's, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I do. Um, But all I can do is be gentle and respectful. Even though you're going to do something you don't agree with. 
I don't. So that that's a loaded question because <laughs> I, so we're going to divide that into two things. Okay. I do not euthanize any animal that I don't feel like it's the right thing to do. I got fired from a job once for declining to do behavioral euthanasias for uh, animal control officer. It's not, I, I have a choice, right? So I don't do euthanasias just because somebody calls me and asks me to. I, that's one thing I've been surprised by is, oh, I'm moving and nobody, I can't take my cat and nobody could give it the home that I could give it. So I'm going to euthanize it. And I say, well, I'm not the right person for you. Yeah. I never did that either. Right. It calls all the time like that. Right. Or I, yeah. And I mean, it's rare that I get behavioral euthanasia calls, but I do get some, but if it's a, my dog bit somebody and now I want to put it down, I, I don't do that unless my dog bit somebody. Now I'm going to talk to my local vet and see what my options are, or I'm going to talk to this behavioralist and see what my options are, or I'm going to talk to this rescue. So behavioral euthanasias, I do them. I don't do them lightly. Um, I've I've been in a situation personally where I had to euthanize a dog for progress, you know, aggression. And I know it's incredibly, incredibly hard for the family, but there, there are limits to, to what I will do. So that, in that situation, I, I'm not a, you know, a doctor to hire for that. I won't, I won't do those. Um, If family, if families have, gone through the steps and, and exhausted their options, then absolutely I will come out and I will help that animal pass peacefully. I have animals that I can't touch, that I have pre-euthanasia sedation picked up from the local veterinary hospital. Um, you know, I will wait in the car for 30 minutes while sedation kicks in. Everything's done in a way to try to make it peaceful and loving and kind, right? With all, with everything that I do. Um And so where I do things that may not be what I would do is, you know, as an emergency vet, people would ask me, what would you do if this were your pet? And when I was younger, I used to answer that question. How obnoxious is that? Because (laughs) I realized as I got older, I have no clue what I would do in that situation until I've been in that situation because... I've answered questions like that. And then a decade later, I've been in that situation and didn't do what I said I would do. Yeah. And so yeah. when people ask me, I, I, I say, you know, I, I can't really answer that because I haven't experienced it unless I have. And if I have, then I'll be very honest with people. But, but yeah, there are people will take steps that I think may be a little bit further than what I would do personally with my own animal. But that's, that's their process, right? And as long as I'm there to make sure that that pet is comfortable, that's okay. Right? That's okay. So you didn't have to make a, a choice other than behavioral, uh, conven- convenience euthanasia. So that's the I main. don't do convenience. So you, you yeah. draw the line there, which I... Uh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, you also have uh, your as your name says, veterinary hospice and senior care, we have about, oh, two minutes, <laughs> three oh, minutes. Dear. Okay. <laughs> and can, what's, what's senior care? Uh, what so is that? How's that care. different than hospice? If it is different 
And right. uh, it, it is different. It's very different. So senior care is coming into a home with an animal who's just starting to have some, some, maybe some mild changes. So, you know, a little bit of cognitive decline, a, a, you know, barking at night or not sleeping as well, or maybe some, some mild mobility issues, senior, what people call senior moments quite a bit. And, or just making sure that as their golden retriever, you know, is eight or nine or 10 years old, that, that there, we're not missing anything that we could be doing to improve quality of life as they age or help them age a little bit um, more comfortably. So it's not a, a dog that has severe osteoarthritis. It's not a dog that's circling and has has, um, you know, a brain tumor or, or severe neurologic issues, it's catching things earlier so that we understand what we can do to provide a good quality of life for as long as we can. So do people call you for just senior care or they start with hospice and you end up senior care? No, I've actually done both. I've, I um, kicked a kitty out of hospice this past year, which was oh, good for you. I've ever done. <laughs> That's great. That's a good Yay. thing. I, it was a, it was awesome. And so, yes, it was a fun thing to do, but, um, no, typically senior care, people reach out for senior care and, um, it's usually it's, it's dogs that are slowing down or having some mild cognitive issues or kitties too. Um, and so we, we kind of get them started and, and there is, it's a, it's a very fun, you know, there's, you can cross over senior care hospice. And so we, we try to um, figure that out when we're doing the the phone interview initially to decide where where kiddos fall. But sometimes they we we say senior care and it should be hospice and we change. And you have in your website laser therapy that sort of thing. Is that senior care basically? Um, yeah, it can be laser can Both? be incorporated in anything. Yeah, I mean okay. laser is an amazing way to provide pain relief, and especially for kiddos who can't tolerate they have severe gastrointestinal issues, they're really sensitive to medications. Laser therapy is really, really a nice way to provide comfort. So good, good thing to have in your armamentarium instead of uh, popping them a steroid pill or something like that. Yeah, that's good. Believe it or not, we have used our hour up. And uh, this has been a really, really informative, insightful, um, let's talk animals. And I appreciate you taking the time. It's Dr. Kelly Hill of the Haven Veterinary Hospice and Senior Care. Thank you for spending the time with me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's, I, I love what I do. It's, it's so important. And so I appreciate you helping people understand it better. I thank you. And I'll be looking for you on Highway 95 where oh, I first saw your car. You were <laughs> zipping by me. You weren't oh, speeding, but you, that's, oh. where I, that's where I got my idea to, to call you up. And I appreciate you answering my email. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We'll see you next time. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. 